Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to today's set of four stories. Our first tale is quite different to the rest. I wanted to surprise you with a pro-revenge story that Reddit user Peculiar Liar shared regarding his revenge on a co-worker who sabotaged him at his place of work. Pro-revenge stories are true stories shared by individuals on how they get back at people that have wronged them. And your first tale is one such story of sweet revenge. Your next set of three stories involves vampires, parasites, and the sinking feeling of being watched in the darkness. Mates, these episodes do have adult themes and is listed as explicit for a reason. This is not for little ears. Definitely not as intense as the previous tales, but still not suitable for the younglings. To all my Chinese listeners, Gong Hei Fat Choi, for those who speak Cantonese, and Gong Si Fat Chai, for those who speak Mandarin, Happy Chinese New Year, where the lunar animal this year is the rat. Now folks, we have a public holiday here in Australia, so I won't be uploading any episodes this Monday, and I too will be celebrating Chinese New Year's with my family and friends from so many different cultures. Which means I'll miss you Monday, but we'll come back full force this Wednesday. And before I start, I have a new Patreon, Aiden Devlin. So right now, I'm on 15 mates, totally stoked to have all your support. And Aiden, welcome to the family. I also want to jump in and thank my Ode Night Tea Titans, Matthew J. Bauer, the Chemical Marvel. Matthew doesn't fight with a stake or a hammer, or any kind of martial weapon, oh no 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 no. Acid, UV grenades, and corrosive chemicals are his weapons of choice. And there is no vampire that this Slayer can't handle with skill, tactics, and intelligence. Truly, an expert in his craft. And Maya the Merciless. A blur of shurikens tipped with UV pads blister through the night at dazzling speeds. One strike after another, a flurry of blows on a creature of the night till they are all but ashes in the street. Truly, Maya the Merciless earns her title in this demonic world. Mates, you spearhead this show when it comes to support. Testament to this is my mic stand. It just came in and I've attached it to the sound box. I'll be uploading pictures to Patreon so you can actually see where the money goes when you donate to the podcast. This new environment is all thanks to you, and we'll be helping the audio sound even better. Thank you so much for your support, mates. It means the world to me. And of course, my two lovelies that are my white tea warlords. I own cows, the bovinator. Two horns in the chest of a vampire might seem absurd to most, but you won't be laughing when a creature of the night sets its sights on you. And Lee Bauer, Marshal Magister, literally punching the soul out of creatures. Lee is a monk of melody, inflicting righteous fury on the creatures that live in the darkness. Thank you both for your support. It's fantastic to have people like you backing this podcast. You're helping it grow and improve, mates. And of course, my old grain forces, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lorraine Crisanto, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Michael Angelo Yacone, Robert Fisher, and Tasha Moncrief. 
cheers mates for your awesome support and I'm going to sign off here at this point because I'm heading off on a long car trip to go to my friend's place but I wanted to ensure that I uploaded an episode before I did so I can't leave you guys without an episode on a Friday night no way stay brilliant stay safe and a big shout out to all my lunar rats for this Chinese New Year Lots of love to you all, and see you next week for some more creepy and unique tales. As always, till next we meet. Get me fired? Say goodbye to your bonus and promotion. This happened a good long while ago. I was in high school and got a job at one of the big stores in the computer department. This store chain had an in-house technician department, which was always where I wanted to go. After busting my ass in sales for two years, putting up with rude customers, silly rules and all the other glorious trappings of retail jobs, I finally got a chance to be promoted to the technician department. It was not as glamorous as I thought it would be. I quickly found out that most of the repairs consisted of running the pre-packaged antivirus suite, update windows and doing data backups prior to wiping computers clean and reinstalling them. I always liked tinkering with hardware more, but since 80% of the customers had laptops and those repairs were deemed too complicated by corporate, we would just send the laptops out to get repaired by the third party vendor. It was still better than sales by a long shot, and we had a great team working in the technician area, except for one dude. Let's call him Mike. He always behaved like his crap smelled like roses. He was technically a lead technician, and even though that just meant he had a little more authority, he had access to a corporate account to arrange shipments of computers to and from our store. He was acting like he was the manager of the department, Nevertheless, our actual manager was a splendid dude that took care of us and as such, Mike's douchery did not bother any of us that much. Fast forward a little and our awesome manager found a much better job. This opened up a spot for manager. And since the whole store supervision was going through a shakeup, their general manager was fired for embezzlement and all the people he hired, 90% of the managers, were under review. This led to everybody trying their hardest not to fuck up. And the new GM decided that our department was one of the best in the district. He would not try to hire an outsider, but will promote from within. Now Mike was working at this store for almost 10 years at that point, and a couple of people that started working with him as sales associates were by this point managers and assistant managers. One of them, Brittany, was an assistant manager in charge of customer services and checkout. One of the conditions of Mike's official promotion to manager was to keep the number one spot in the district performance-wise. One of the key metrics was the rejection rate for our third-party vendor. If we mistakenly sent them a software problem to fix, they would charge us extra. Mike started obsessing about the numbers, especially when it came to the rejection rate. He insisted that we would spend extra time to confirm issues even when they were recalls from manufacturers for these items. I hated this bureaucracy, since it meant that people needed to wait almost the maximum allowed time to get their computers back. 
So a few times I skipped the extra diagnostics when I knew for sure that the problem was hardware. One day, Mike decided to do an audit on all outgoing machines and found out that I've sent four units skipping his extra checks. He told me that he will write me up for it. But when he tried, GM told him that he is not a manager yet. And I have shown to the GM that I followed the corporate procedure in diagnosing these units. I thought that that was the end of this, but I was sorely mistaken. Mike hated that I showed a GM that Mike's procedure was inefficient and that he was denied power over me. About a month later, I got a call from Mike asking if I could come to the store on my day off because there was an issue with a customer. When I came in, I was greeted by Mike with a shit-eating grin and he told me to wait in the back and not to work on any computers. After about an hour, Mike and Brittany came in and asked me to head to the front office. They started an official write-up process and claimed that I have made a mistake creating a backup of customers' data and have placed a DVD with no data on it into the box that was returned to a customer and then wiped his PC clean. I knew that it was bullshit. Since I always copied the data to an external hard drive, run antiviruses to make sure that nothing bad got copied, and then burn DVDs. Yet, when I asked to check the external hard drive, Mike said that due to my negligence, I was not allowed back in the tech area. He went to check the hard drive and said there was nothing on it. At that point, I knew he was bullshitting, but him and Brittany were hell-bent on completing the write-up. I have asked for a senior manager to be present and do a shutdown again. Turns out GM was on vacation. They completed the write-up and told me that due to the egregious error that cost the company tens of thousands of dollars, I was not allowed to work in the tech room and I would be relegated back to the sales floor. I told them to shove it and submitted my resignation on the spot. I later found out that a week later, they gave the customer the data that was on the hard drive all this time. Mike simply erased the DVDs. I grabbed the DVD-RW by mistake for that backup and waited for the customer to come back and complain. I have also called the corporate HR line and told them what happened. They said that since I quit with a letter of resignation, they would not launch an investigation, but they have received and recorded my complaint. Through luck and the fact that I was a good hardware tech, I landed a job at a shop that did hardware repairs a week later and started in another week. Turns out, this depot was the service center that covered the entire district and they had the master contract with the big box chain where I worked. Since I have worked as a tech in that store, I was more than familiar with their labeling and ticketing system. For tracking purposes, the label included the store and technician number. After a couple of weeks, I gathered some goodwill at my new job and started trading the units with my colleagues to work on as many units from my old store as possible. Over the next three months, I made sure that every single unit sent in by Mike would come back with an extra charge. Also, it turned out that Mike, since he was in charge of shipping, would sometimes steal other technicians' tickets to boost his personal performance numbers to secure that manager promotion. Well, that bit him in the ass hard. There was one week in particular 
when he sent in over 15 units out of the 20 to get fixed, and 15 units came back with extra software charge. I have also kept detailed records that proved that Mike did not follow his own policy of extra checks. When the performance figures came out for that quarter, Store crashed into 5th place for number 1, Mike missed out on his promotion, and a big bonus that was promised to him. A good buddy of mine from the store got the manager position a few months after that, and I have explained to him how to reduce the number of software charges to almost zero. So he looked like a superstar. Mike was first relocated to lead technician, then he was either let go, or he quit. I'm not sure. Last I heard, he started his own mobile technician business that folded after a year. What I didn't know is that this whole incident with Mike and his major fuck-up led to the GM to review everything Mike did, including my write-up and dismissal. As it turns out, they did not even register the write-up since I quit on the spot and buried it. The only way my GM was able to find it was because of the HR complaint that was filed against both Mike and Brittany. GM was not pleased that they went behind his back to get rid of someone and fired Brittany. He was a very decent man who called me later that day and apologized and even offered my old job back. I thanked him, but I was making more money at the new place and did not have to deal with customers. So I passed. The Vampire's Curse It was an ordinary winter day, about a week after Christmas. I was minding my own business, watching TV, surfing the net, and all sorts of stuff. I must admit, it was a really boring day. The day passed, it was about midnight. Bored like hell, I almost fell asleep, so I decided to go to bed. Just before I could reach my room, the lights flashed a little bit, and a kind of strange sound could be heard. I thought it was just a random blackout, so I just tried to sleep. One hour passed, I woke up from a horrible nightmare. Everything was bloody red, corpses everywhere, and me, standing barefoot in the snow, with clothes soaked in blood. Fortunately, a hellish scream woke me up. I saw a shadow like a human silhouette, but just for a couple of seconds. Was that my imagination? Maybe I wasn't completely awake. All I can remember after these events is that the next morning I woke up with a pretty bad pain in my neck. Days have passed. Definitely something inside me is changing. I was not myself. I lived in fear. But even I had no idea what I was actually fearing. I started to behave differently. I stopped talking to my friends. I stopped any sort of communication with people. I even started to skip school. One day, while doing some homework, I accidentally cut myself. I ignored that cut, considering it was really small and insignificant. A very little amount of blood was spilled, but I observed that. Everything turned red. I felt extremely powerful, like a beast. I quickly rushed and started to suck my own blood. I ripped my skin apart so I could draw more. 
I didn't stop drinking, even though I started to get dizzy and I was about to faint. My eyes started to glow, turning into an intense shade of red. As I stood there, powerless, I was losing huge amounts of blood. I blacked out. When I woke up, everything was alright. I was healed and my finger was completely normal. No cuts. What have I become? Am I a vampire? Have I turned into a bloodthirsty beast? It can't be, I said to myself. Unfortunately, I was lying. Without my approval, of course, I received the dark gift. First, I thought about committing suicide, thinking that I was a fierce beast who takes human form and feasts with the blood of humans. But then, I started to embrace the changes. I started to discover the benefits, and even learned how to control my hunger for blood. I started hanging out with my friends again, and regained my social life. I was somewhat happier. I accepted my fate, and kept saying it is my destiny, so I could do nothing about it. Everything was normal, until I met her. One day, a girl transferred into our school. She was really cute, and as I started talking to her, I noticed we have a lot of things in common. We became good friends really quick. I fell in love with her and found out she felt the same for me. She was the best thing that ever happened to me, and I couldn't imagine my life without her. We were both really happy. One unfortunate night would start the process of shattering our happiness forever. School was over, but I was absent that day, so she went home alone. On her way home, she met with a group of men, and that group of men harassed her. God knows what those scumbags wanted to do with her. I was really far, but I heard her scream. That scream. I remember it forever, even after death. That scream, knowing that the person I love is in danger. I felt extreme anger and rage. My eyes turned red once more, and I started to run fast. When I got there, five men were very close to her. The first one was the luckiest. I killed him quick, just by biting his neck and draining all his blood and life energy. The second had a pretty unpleasant death considering that I strangled him to death. The third was pretty tough, but my rage gave me strength. So much strength, that I beat that guy to death. One of them dropped the knife to the ground. I grabbed it and stuck it into his neck. His death was slow and painful, so I was able to get a taste of his blood. I found out that the fifth man was their leader, and I ripped his ribs apart, and using the same knife, I stabbed his heart as I whispered into his ear, just before he died. 
This is what I felt when I heard her scream. She was fine, so I was relieved. I rushed to hug her, but I noticed something that turned out to be fatal for her. She had a tiny cut on her shoulder, revealing a little bit of blood. I couldn't control my rage. I tried to stop. I tried to run. I even tried to stick that knife into my heart so I could save her. I told her to run, but it was too late. My vampiric form took over my human form. I was not human anymore. I caught her and stuck my fangs into her neck, drinking her blood. Even though I was controlled by hunger, I still tried to stop, but it was too late. When I was conscious again, I found her lying on the ground, dead. Seeing that image, my whole world was torn apart. I started crying and screaming. How could I live anymore? Knowing that I murdered the most important person in my life. That's right. I can't. Farewell. While it watches. It seems that almost everyone on the planet has a similar fear. If you'll allow me to set the scene, you're lying in bed at night, the darkness embracing every inch of you, and you feel a little tingle on the back of your neck, which you initially dismiss as nothing. There's a small part of your brain, however, which seems to be unusually active at night that tells you it's something more. That tingle, far from being a slight breeze that wafted gently over you, becomes a strained breath over your nape and your guts begin to tell you that you aren't alone. You try to fight it, but the thought has taken up residence and squats. It haunches in your mind, breeding and feeding on your fear to grow stronger and stronger. You shut your eyes tightly against the outside world and try to stave off the paranoia just long enough to fall asleep. It's a vain fight, though, as once you have reached this point, you know there can be no dropping off, and you reach the epitome of the nighttime quandary. Do you lie there for hours trying to achieve slumber, or do you open your eyes and look around the room to prove that there's nothing there? Logically, it's obvious that the latter is the only real option. That if you glance around you into the darkness, there will be no intruder, and you'll finally be able to go to sleep unhindered. The problem is that the logical part of your brain seems to speak much more quietly at night, and is easily led by the primitive, childlike portion of your mind, which gives full credence to the fears that have now taken firm hold within you. Now, you know for a fact that if you do sit up in your bed and slowly, fearfully take just a glance around you, you're going to be met with two dully glowing eyes staring right back at you. In your mind, those eyes give off almost enough light to make out the rest of the hideous face they are attached to. Your imagination begins to run away with you and starts to snowball. Are those slit-like nostrils quivering with the excitement at the stench of your terror? Or are they wide and flared from rage at having been discovered? You imagine you see a wide grin spread across its face. 
perhaps partially from the joy of finding its next meal, but mainly because of the sheer number of needle-fine teeth crammed within. It shifts in your mind, becoming a circular, lamprey-like maw filled with rows upon rows of sword-tooth protuberances. It then becomes just a small hole with a spiny tongue shooting out and back repeatedly. The longer you try not to think about it, the more the creature twists and distorts in your mind, coming ever closer to the most nightmare-inducing terror your vicious mind's eye can come up with. Now the terror has taken full hold, and it's too late to open your eyes. You resort to the only thing left you can think to do. Slowly and deliberately, you clutch onto the top of your duvet so tightly that your knuckles turn white and draw it up above your head. You make sure to keep it close to you so you don't accidentally touch the thing staring at you. You hope, almost pray, that this will hold as a final barrier against monsters like it, and how you always managed to do so when you were a child. You feel a brief moment of relief knowing that there is now at least something between you and it. You notice your mistake when you realize it could now be doing anything at all out there and you would have no idea. Your heart skips a beat. You're certain you just felt the mattress compress right at the edge. It was only slight but you know that evil being has just clambered up and is now hunched right over you with its face so close that if it stuck out its vile tongue, you'd be able to feel it licking through the covers. Your mind changes, however, when you feel the blanket move just a little down by your feet. It wasn't on the bed at all. It's now reaching a gnarled hand out to clasp you by the ankle, drag you out, and take you away to its lair. That's when you hear something, a wheezing, groaning, strained breath. You try to stifle a whimper but fail miserably and let it know you're still awake and terrified. Now it knows it has you just where it wants you and you can feel it reaching out to shred through the sheets and tear the flesh from your bones. All you can do now is pray that it kills you quickly so you don't suffer too much. Another hour passes of the knot tied down in your gut, conspiring with the images in your head to keep you awake and finally Deciding enough is enough, you force logic back to the surface and determine to prove that you are indeed alone. Clenching your eyes tight and your teeth tighter, you slowly pull the covers back down and expose your sweaty flesh to its mercy. The relative coolness of the room flows over you. You hadn't realized just how hot you've been getting under there. This slight relief steals your resolve just a tiny bit. When your throat doesn't get ripped out, you open one eye just enough to let some of the ambient darkness in. So far, so good. You open it up fully, soon followed by the other, and see a total lack of anything staring back at you. Feeling more confident by the second, you lift yourself up onto your elbows and look around the room. Absolutely nothing. No grotesque face, no toothy grin, no gnarled claws, and above all else, no dimly glowing eyes watching you from beside the bed, across the room, through the cracked closet door, or anywhere else. All you are faced with is the absolute darkness of the room and nothing that dwells within. You chide yourself for your foolishness, for letting the frightened child of your psyche get the better of you and flop back onto the bed. 
utterly relieved. Now when you feel that tingle on your neck, you accept that as the movement of cool air, that it obviously is, and you refuse to let your imagination turn the rumbling of your own worn-out refrigerator motor into the sounds of breathing or creaking floorboards, settling into scampering footsteps. I understand this fear. It's one I've held much closer to me than many others, for my own reasons. There is one thing I don't understand, though. Why on earth did you think its eyes would glow? Vitrios In mid-July of 1991, when Sam was six years old, he was holding his mother's hand as they walked barefoot across the baking hot asphalt of the neighborhood pool parking lot. He had his other arm through the hole of his inflatable black inner tube, and was gazing off at an angle tangential to the sun. Something was bothering him, and had been ever since school let out the month prior. Sam refrained from telling his mother about it, and his father was not exactly a prime source of emotional comfort, because he was afraid she would think he's going crazy. The passage of time for the young always seems so much slower than for an adult, even in the happiest of days. With this secret weighing on Sam's heart, the past month had felt like an eternity. Finally, he screwed up the courage to speak. Mum, I've got to tell you something. She looked down at him, a kind but apprehensive smile spreading across her face. She knew he was a good boy, but that was really a good way for your child to start the conversation. Go ahead, sweetie. Sometimes I see things like some kind of squirmy bug. Sam said. I don't think they're really there. I kind of see through them. And they run away when I try to look straight at them. But they're always there. I think they might be inside my eyes. Her smile widened and she looked off to the side so as to not let him see it. Since this seemed to be a serious issue for him. So many nonsensical worries turned into serious issues for Sam, a trait he likely inherited from her. Most of his issues tended toward the monster in the closet category, a battle she had finally won through countless subsequent nights in which he was not eaten by a Gru. So she thought something with an actual medical explanation should be easily put right. I used to get those sometimes. Lots of people do actually. I know they look weird, like squiggly little worms or something, but they're really just harmless little specks in your eyes that people call floaters. They are not alive, and they can't hurt you. They come and go. It's no big deal. She ruffled Sam's hair as they approached the girl guarding the entrance to the pool, and waved their membership cards for entrance. Sam spent the day doing flips underwater, and sometimes just bobbing along the surface of the pool in his black rubber inner tube. He slowly began to put the visions, what his mother had called floaters, out of his mind. She had seen them too, which alone would have taken most of the menace away from them. Even if they weren't harmless like she promised they were, he sometimes wondered if his parents understood how much less scary those closet monsters would have been for him if they had only acknowledged the monster's existence. Knowing you're alone with horrors that only you can see is always the worst part. But if mum sees the worms and still says everything's fine, then it must be, he thought to himself. He found it somewhat odd 
that she mentioned the worms but not the spiders, or the way they scream when you try to fall asleep. But he supposed they went without saying. Sam stretched out across the tube and let himself float. Ten months later, when Sam was seven, his parents took him to the optometrist, Dr. Howard, for an eye exam. After reading off a series of letters, the doctor asked him to read another, smaller, series of letters. This and other tests went on for what struck his parent as an unusually long duration. Before Dr. Howard finally stopped and stared at Sam thoughtfully, he leaned down to get to eye level with the child, as adults tend to do, and said loud enough to make sure the parents heard as well, Do you know what 2020 vision means? Sam shook his head in negation. It means, Dr. Howard continued, that you see things from 20 feet away, as well as most people see them from 20 feet away. That's normal. Some people see things worse than most people, and they might see things from 20 feet away, as well as most people see them from 30 or 40 feet away. We call that 2040 vision, and that's when people start having real problems with their eyesight. Sam's mother and father both visibly stiffened, afraid of where this might be going. Dr. Howard glanced briefly their way, held up a hand, then returned his attention to Sam. Yours, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. You have what I believe to be 26 vision. It might be even better than that, but I... He shook his head slightly, bugged out his eyes, and turned his palms up. That would be like describing an eagle. You might as well be walking around with a pair of binoculars in your head. It's basically unheard of. Sam's parents exhaled and smiled slightly, happy that their news was good and their son was normal, exceptional even. Sam, on the other hand, felt a spine-tingling ripple of unease wash over him at the comparison to eagles that Dr. Howard had made. His parents limited his television time except when it came to informative programs. So if it was raining outside and he was bored, his options were either a book or some educational show. Some weeks ago, he had seen a program on birds. He learned that contrary to what people once thought, birds caught worms not because of hearing or feeling their vibrations, but because of their exceptional vision. They would tilt their heads so their eyes were facing the ground, and watch for the most infinitesimal disturbances caused by worms passing. This tingle of unease was brought to Sam courtesy of the fact that the worms and spiders had become more well-defined in the past six or seven months and screamed louder than ever. Worst of all was hearing the doctor tell him that his eyesight was above and beyond normal. Over the past few months, his vision had become milky and clouded with the apparitions, causing him much concern. By the time the optometrist appointment came, he could barely read even the largest of letters on the eye exam making Dr. Howard's proclamation of exceptional vision even more disturbing to him. Acting on a hunch, Sam had merely been repeating the letters which were being screamed to him inside of his own eyes. By age of 11, the world through Sam's eyes had become a greyish-white fog. He had summoned up the courage to initiate a tearful and terrified conversation with his mother and father. He told them everything, and his dad responded by silently retrieving a flashlight and shining it in his son's eyes. He mumbled something about cataracts, but shook his head. He hadn't seen anything other than Sam's bright blue irises. Appointments to Dr. Howard became a bi-monthly event, then had finally ceased. 
They were replaced by trips to a specialist who has a two-hour drive away if traffic was moderate. The new doctor seemed increasingly agitated with Sam after each appointment. Sam didn't know the word the specialist reluctantly told his parents. Psychosomatic? But he did know that after four of these trips, they promptly ended and were replaced by a much shorter drive to the office of a completely different manner of doctor. This new doctor office had a couch and lots of stuffed animals. All this doctor seemed interested in was talking about Sam's life and feelings. He took lots of notes and cast many sideways glances in the boy's direction. To make matters worse, there were dots now, little milky punctuation marks which the worms and spiders left in their wake. While the worms and spiders kept squirming around, albeit slightly more sluggishly than they had before, the dots remained perfectly still. This essentially marked the end of Sam's ability to view the outside world. Everything now revolved around the screaming circus conducting its daily performance inside of his skull. There was, however, a change in the condition which Sam regarded as horrible and merciful at the same time. They had begun to laugh. It was a terrible mixture of tittering and squealing, but it was undeniably laughter. At least they stopped screaming long enough to laugh, even if the shrill hissing sound did invariably cause his bladder to release. Sam was 12 years old when the white specks which had erased the last vestiges of his view of the normal world began to split open and writhe, and everything suddenly made a horrible manner of sense to him. Eggs. They had been laying eggs. At this realization, whatever tattered remnants of his sanity had been hanging on by a thread simply slipped loose and flew away. He squeezed his fingers against his palms, but kept his thumbs stuck out, curled upward like dull fishing hooks. He raised them to his eyes and began to dig. As his thumbs met his retinas, there was a single distant screech, a polite but stern protest. This did not last long. Once he began digging in earnest, the screaming became unfathomably louder than it ever had before which he allowed himself a moment to be surprised by. It was as if the creature had discovered a bullhorn stashed away inside of his skull somewhere. He realized this was a noise which, had it been coming from outside his own head, would have been deafening. Deafness would have been a mercy, as it would have meant cessation of the hideous, wailing cacophony being orchestrated for his audience of one. He dug until his milky grey view of the world turned to fire, then ultimately blackness, as warmth rolled down his cheeks and ended in a quiet, sickening slosh on the wooden floorboards of his parents' kitchen. Sam fell to his knees. Horror and agony yielded to a merciful relief, the likes of which most will never know. Blindness came as a blessing, freedom from that which had so horribly oppressed him. There on his knees, Sam tittered and ran his fingers along his now vacant eye sockets. His laughter devolved steadily into screams as he began to feel a squirming sensation work its way up from the floor, ascending his form with frightening alacrity. Even without eyes, he could see the errors of his ways. The same documentary which taught Sam about how birds hunt worms went on to discuss the common goldfish. 
and how they could and would grow to match the volume of their bowls. Upon achieving freedom from globes far too small for their goals, the floaters screamed in triumph through mouthfuls of their former host's bloody flesh and began to grow.